Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us and glad to be in studio. Now, some of you might have noticed I wasn't here for the full program yesterday, and there's a bit of a story behind that story. But before I get to what happened yesterday, I want to look back to 2011. It was about this time of year, in fact, in 2011, when Dan and I were, Dan Rice and I were planning to lead a group from uh, this uh, listening audience on the KPDQ tour to Israel. We were excited. We've been planning for about a year. My husband came down with something like the flu and uh, wasn't really recovering as well as we had hoped, but we assumed, you know, he'll just get better along the way. Well, the day before we were planning to leave, he decided maybe I should go see my general practitioner just to get a, you know, do I need antibiotics? Is there something I can do to at least feel better on the long flight from Uh, Portland to Israel. Well, he went to the doctor's appointment and was told, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I would advise you not to get on that plane. Well, that that was shocking advice. And I was a little surprised my husband took the doctor's advice because, you know, we love to travel. We love going to Israel. And this was a trip we were really looking forward to. Uh, Pastor Martin from um, uh, from our radio uh, station here was going to be leading the trip. And it, it was just going to be a great opportunity to travel uh, together. Well, it turned out my husband took his advice. He didn't go on the trip. And a couple of days into it, I learned that he had been hospitalized uh, with an infection to his heart. Well, it had happened once before early in our marriage. We'd only been married about five years. And it ended up him having to have his heart valve replaced Well, it's 2011 if you fast forward and that heart infection is treated with a tube that went through his chest and directly into his heart, pumping antibiotics 24-7 to try to end the infection that was weakening the tissue around the heart valve that had been put in place some years before. Well, it didn't work. Um, So uh, by the time I got back from the trip, and believe you me, it was a bit of a distraction and something I prayed about and tried to decide, should I stay? Should I go? Dan said, hey, we've been planning this trip. Um, you you uh, lead in the way that the two of us had planned. We'll let the Lord take care of the rest. Well, I came home and shortly after he had open heart surgery to have the artificial heart valve he had replaced. Well, as you might recall, back in 2011, we replaced that heart valve. He started to improve, but then the improvement ended some months later, about two months later, they said, we're going to have to go back in and replace that valve. We had a second surgery. Fortunately, they were able to salvage the valve they had just put in by gathering up healthy tissue to uh, fill in a space that had opened up. And um, the rest is history. For the last six years, he's done very well. Well, a couple of weeks ago, came down with the flu. Was really sick. In fact, this was the worst flu that he'd ever had. My husband's never sick. In fact, when he's sick, it's such a rarity. We you know, don't quite know how to how to handle it. Well, he started getting a little bit better, but then, well, he declined and he continued to get worse and worse. When I was in San Diego at the Restored Hope Network conference, um, he and I were in constant communication. He said, something just doesn't feel right. Well, I said, you need to see your doctor. It was the weekend. And how likely are you to see your doctor? Well, thank you, Jesus. He called the doctor's office. And on Sunday, He was able to see our primary care doctor in the office where we normally go. And the doctor said, look, we're going to you're going to need to come back on Monday. We're going to take some cultures because there's something wrong here. We had gone in some weeks earlier because he had what are called splinter hemorrhages and these uh, wounds on the ends of his fingers, which are evidence that something is not quite right. It was ruled out. He'd seen his cardiologist and the assumption was, well, 
you might have had a little challenge, but we don't think it's serious. Fast forward to this past weekend on Monday, he has some blood cultures taken and yesterday was told that those blood cultures came back abnormal and he was going to need to go to the hospital where he went yesterday. I had uh, put a whole show together, planned to uh, to do the show. We'd in fact pre-recorded a couple of interviews uh, that we planned to run at the end of yesterday's shows, which I understand James told me we did. Um, but when I got the call that he was to be admitted into the hospital right away, I, of course, was permitted to leave. And I have to tell you, James Blend, bless his heart. He when I went in and told him, and of course, I'm a girl, I was crying. I said, this is what's happening. And I assumed I'll you know, finish the show. And he said, no, we're not going to do the rest of the show live. You go and be with your husband. And he took on the labor of making sure that when you turned your radio uh, on uh, yesterday at four o'clock, there was content there that you uh, that you would enjoy. So I made my way home where Dan was still preparing to go to the hospital and we spent the rest of the evening there. He was admitted. We had one of the longest echocardiograms uh, I've ever experienced with him. It took about 40 minutes, but they were looking very carefully. He did some blood cultures. They did a number of tests and um, we're just waiting. We met with the infectious diseases doctor. We met with a cardiologist and some other people this morning and Uh, We're now waiting for a final word on whether or not he has the same infection that endocarditis that he has had the last two times his heart valve was replaced. Now, what they're going to do is determine what specifically is the nature of this infection. We know he has an infection surging through his uh, his blood. Uh, We know that the heart valve doesn't appear at this point to have any vegetation growing, which is a major sign of of concern. And once they identify the infection, they can... uh, Pick the right antibiotic to address that specifically, and that's what we're waiting for. In fact, uh, when I uh, finish doing a couple of segments live here today, I'm going to rush off to the hospital to be with him, and we're we're hoping to get some uh, clear information. What we expect will happen is they'll give him mega doses of antibiotics. That's what's happened the other times um, that led ultimately to a heart valve replacement, and we're praying that this time, unlike the previous times, that antibiotic would kill the infection. He would not be required to have open heart surgery. Um, that's what we're praying. And we'll find out, I'm hoping, later today what the uh, protocol, what the plan will be moving forward. So that's uh, why I wasn't here for the full program yesterday. That's why I sounded a little distracted on the program on Monday. And I'm hoping uh, by tomorrow we'll be live in studio for the full two hours. We'll just wait and see. But uh, with a clear plan of what uh, what's going to happen next Uh, with Dan Rice. I would really appreciate it if you would remember him in prayer. God knows all the details. He was fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in his mother's womb. So there's no mystery from God's vantage point as to what's happening with Dan's physical body. Dan is not worried. He's not overly concerned. He's not wringing his hand. He has entrusted his life to Christ. He did that years ago, and he continues to do that on a daily basis. And I have to tell you, I marvel at how he addresses the medical professionals that come and go. He, despite the fact that he's exhausted, he has very little strength or energy, always greets them friend in a very friendly way. He always thanks them, uh, says they did a great job, how much he appreciates the work that they do. You know, Dan is just on ministering to the people around him while he is being ministered to. So his spirits are good. His his life is in God's hands, and he's he's trusting that God... Um, will um, produce an outcome that will ultimately bring him glory and will be for Dan's good. So whether he lives or dies, Dan says, uh, God has got him and he's not worried about it. I'm coming to that point. I, I spent a lot of time yesterday kind of feeling sorry for myself and snapped out of it and realized that, you know, um, 
we have to thank God for the good and the bad and trust him in the midst of it and look for the opportunities that he's giving us to minister to other people uh, through it all. So that is our goal. And if you think of it, would you please remember to keep Dan Rice in prayer and we'll try to keep you updated as uh, we progress toward what I'm praying and hoping for is his full recovery and healing. But I tell you, even if that is not the outcome, um, we will trust uh, we will trust God throughout um, this latest ordeal. So today is going to be a combination of things. Uh, later in the program, I'm going to speak with Adam Michelle. He's a policy analyst with the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. And we're going to talk about the uh, tax reform that the Speaker of the House uh, spoke on yesterday at a manufacturing summit. And uh, we'll also uh, share some other things with you. So uh, stick around. There's a lot of good stuff coming up in the program today. I'm Georgine Rice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Republican Karen Handel's win last night against John Ossoff in Georgia's congressional special election was a major defeat for Democrats looking for reprisal after their loss in November. Now, depending on who you're listening to and how the hype was built and then how the hype was uh, a little bit retracted, uh, given the fact that it was going to be such a tight race, as expected, the media didn't uh, handle the loss very well. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow blamed Ossoff's loss on the weather, suggesting there were partisan implications of heavy rain. I mean, is she saying that God was on the side of one part of this political equation? I'm not sure how she would explain that. Um, But later in the show, she blamed money in politics for Handel's win, stating we're getting a real time result of what it means when more money is spent to try to win a congressional seat than at any other time and for any other seat in American history. And while the congressional race did set a record for spending, Maddow conveniently left out the fact that it was Handel, the Republican opponent, Um, uh, who spent 7.5 times less than uh, Democrat John Ossoff. So the money was actually on the Ossoff side. Now, there was a lot being said earlier that this was, in fact, going to be a real uh, test of whether or not the the Democrats in the midterm elections were about to hand um, the president his his hat, his marching papers, if you will. Um, Alexandra DeSantis uh, wrote this about the uh, election, the Georgia 6th, Uh, 2018 um, clues to the upcoming midterms exactly two months ago, she writes, politicos around the country counted down the final hours until polls closed in Georgia's sixth district, anticipating the results of a special congressional election widely perceived as a referendum on the fledgling presidency of Donald Trump. The events of the last few months have proven that it is anything but. So if you're trying to make something of uh, this race, this is what uh, DeSantis suggests you ought to make or not make of it. Those same polling places are reopening today, this was yesterday, to welcome the district's residents back for a second round of voting. This time, voters will send one candidate to the House, as was the case last time. The result will tell us very little about Americans' attitudes toward or our current administration. In a notable, uh, it is notable, rather, that after just a few months of campaigning, the candidates in the 6th District have managed to accumulate more than 50 million 
million dollars, shattering the existing record. But that money says less about the national significance of this race than it does about how much power our political parties have in dictating the terms of our civic engagement. Reeling from the blow of Trump's November victory, Democratic Party leaders zeroed in on Georgia's sixth district, district rather, which lacked a representative after Tom Price was appointed Secretary of Health and Human Services. The young John Ossoff in particular captured their attention and he was immediately christened the district's progressive anti-Trump. That portrait quickly allowed him to attract national support. Nearly 95 percent of the eight point three million dollars Ossoff raised prior to April 18th jungle primary came from outside Georgia. Celebrities joined in the left's excitement, quickly seizing upon Ossoff's candidacy as a means of expressing fervent anti-Trump sentiment. Alyssa Milano, for example, traveled to Georgia's 6th District to offer Ossoff voters uh, free rides to the polls on April 18th. While not every celebrity supporter engaged in similarly dedicated get-out-the-vote efforts, several other prominent actors and comedians, including Samuel L. Jackson, George Takai, Chelsea Handler, recorded ads for Ossoff or lobbied for him on Twitter, which may not have done him much of a favor. The Republican primary field was divided among nearly a dozen candidates, about six of whom were viable contenders and Ossoff outspent his GOP competitors by huge margins. All the same, Ossoff narrowly missed the 50 percent mark on April 18th, which would have allowed him to take the House seat outright. Since then, Ossoff's campaign had raked in another $15 million, bringing his total fundraising haul to more than $23 million. But his campaign's latest financial report again indicates perhaps his biggest weakness. From March the 29th through May the 31st, Ossoff received contributions from more than 7,000 Californians and only 800 of his own state's residents. This has allowed his uh, competitor in the runoff, Republican Karen Handel, to portray the Democrat as more aligned with California's interests than those of Georgia's 6th District. For her part, the longtime Georgia politician has raised $4.2 million, and she remains locked, or back then, locked in a dead heat despite the massive disparity uh, in spending. The latest polls show a nearly tied race. So we now know the outcome. It was about 16, or rather 10 million uh, voter spread. Uh, and about a four percentage point uh, spread in that um, that race. And I would agree that uh, with uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. DeStanctis, who points out that what this uh, uh, this money uh, seems to signify uh, is that um, uh, is how much power our political parties have in dictating the terms of our civic engagement. Well, there was a lot of hay being made about this race. And if Mr. Ossoff had won, I'm certain it would have been interpreted as a clear indication that Donald Trump is in trouble for the midterm elections as it is now. It was the weather uh, and uh, the excessive money being spent, however, by Mr. Ossoff and not his opponent who won that race. Well, Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor who's overseeing the probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election, will meet or has met with senior uh, Senate Judiciary Committee members to make sure that no conflict between his probe and the committees exists. Reuters, citing congressional aides, reported that Mueller's, uh, Mueller rather will meet with Senators Charles uh, Grassley, the committee's Republican chairman, and its top Democrat, Senator Dianne Feinstein, today. Fox News reported that President Trump's legal team and his defenders are taking an aggressive defensive stance now that special counsel Bob Mueller has announced an initial hiring of 12 attorneys, some of whom, in fact, most of whom appear to harbor political leanings. They were 
uh, financial donors to the Democrat Party and supporters of Hillary Clinton. The president has denied that he has uh, any nefarious ties to Russia and has also disputed that he's attempted to block the investigation into his campaign's possible role in Russia's election-related hacking. It was unclear whether his tweets about being under investigation was based on direct knowledge or new media reports that suggest Mueller is examining whether the president obstructed justice by firing FBI Director James Comey. And by the way, we don't actually know. Mueller has never said only the Washington Post made that uh, statement. And at least some of the president's spokespersons are indicating his tweet that followed was intended to be a sarcastic a reflection of that uh, media article. Not clear which is the truth. In an appearance on ABC's This Week, former House Speaker and Trump advisor Newt Gingrich suggested it raises questions of a politically motivated prosecution. The first four names are all people who gave to Democrats, Gingrich said. Now in this environment with the Justice Department, where 97 percent of the donations last year went to Hillary, 97 percent explained to me why I should relax as a Republican. Kellyanne Conway, the top advisor to the president, tweeted a report citing a Federal Election Commission report that states Mueller's team includes big Democrat donors, some maxed out, none wanted Trump to be POTUS. Well, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich led one uh, line of attack with a tweet that said Republicans are delusional if they think the special counsel is going to be fair. He added that fundraising records show uh, some of the lawyers who Mueller suggested or rather selected for his team have contributed to Democrats. Well, the meeting today is to assure that there's no direct conflict of interest, at least with regard to the committee and the special counsel. Well, Republicans may be celebrating more than July the 4th after next week if the Senate gets its act together and successfully de- the health care debate. America may be looking at its independence from Obamacare. According to sources, there's light at the end of the tunnel for GOP leaders who've spent the last six weeks in a bill uh, writing frenzy. The plan's great reveal is scheduled for Thursday or Friday when both parties will finally get a peek at Republicans' vision for one-sixth of the U.S. economy. Let me just stop and take a deep breath. One-sixth of the U.S. economy. At today's policy lunch, that was actually yesterday, the GOP was expected to get its first look at how the chairman drew up the big-ticket items like tax credits, Medicaid changes, and Planned Parenthood funding. The Senate will soon have a chance to turn the page on this failed law, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters. We have to act, and we are. Despite the tight turnaround, he promises that the Senate will have ample opportunity to read and amend the bill. Of course, Democrats are already complaining about the timeline and vowing to gum up the process. That's ironic. Senator Chuck Grassley pointed out since uh, Obama's party dropped its uh, bill on Republicans on Christmas Eve. If all goes according to plan, senators will have 20 hours of debate, followed by a rapid fire voterama where parties can offer an unlimited number of amendments without much discussion. Now, when the shoe was on the other foot, the Republicans complained that there wasn't enough time to really fully comprehend and read the bill. Now, they uh, seem to be setting up a similar scenario. Chuck Grassley, who was all behind the Democrats who did not provide opportunity to read and comprehend the bill uh, now uh, finds that is a, a problem. So it doesn't really matter who's in which chair. Um, what goes around apparently seems to come around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the State Department has opened a formal inquiry into whether former Secretary of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her aides mishandled classified information while she was the nation's top diplomat. Well, it seems to me that's an 
question that's already been answered. But despite being under investigation, she and her staffers still have security clearances to access sensitive government information. Now, I don't know. I don't know why she would uh, want to access sensitive government information, but I suppose some of her um, associates might. Uh, they are still in the system, presumably. Well, the department's investigation arms uh, uh, rather aims to determine whether Clinton and her closest aides violated government protocols by using her private server to receive, hold, and transmit classified and top-secret government documents. Well, the department declined to say when its inquiry began, but it follows the conclusion of the FBI's probe into the matter, which didn't result in any actions being taken against Clinton or any of her aides. Well, depending on the outcome of the current State Department inquiry, the former Secretary of State and her aides could have their access to sensitive government documents terminated. Now, that might be less meaningful to her since presumably her political career has ended. But for those who worked with and around her, that could be a problem. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Chuck Grassley, Republican out of Iowa, confirmed to Fox News the department's formal inquiry. Well, meanwhile, Grassley's committee launched its own inquiry into Clinton's handling of emails, an inquiry that started back in March. Grassley cited among his uh, concerns the July 5th statement of the former FBI director, James Comey, that the agency found Clinton and her staff members were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. He also contended that there was evidence to uh, of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information. Well, during the FBI's investigation of her use of top secret and classified information on her private server, uh, then uh, FBI director... Comey said that there were seven email chains on Clinton's computer that were classified at the top secret special access program level. Another 2000 emails on her private server were found to have contained information deemed classified now, though not marked classified when sent. In addition, the server also contained 22 top secret emails deemed too damaging to national security to be released. Well, a spokesperson for the former Secretary of State, Nick Merrill, told Fox News that the investigation into Clinton's mishandling of classified information is done. Well, maybe not. Nothing's been more thoroughly dissected. It's over. Case closed, literally, Mr. Merrill said. Well, that's not a universally held view. Chris Farrell, who's a judicial watch uh, conservative, that Washington-based government watchdog, Uh, that's filed a number of lawsuits related to the Clinton email scandal, said he believes Clinton and her circle of national security criminals, as he put it, should not have access to any classified information for any reason. Their conduct has cost them that privileged position of special trust and confidence, Farrell said. Any other government employee would have been prosecuted under 18 U.S.C. Section 793F, mishandling national defense information, and be subject to a long prison sentence and large fines, Farrell added. This flagrant double standard for the gang that exposed top secret uh, code word material to the Russians, Chinese and others is both offensive and deeply corrosive to the intelligence community. Farrell went on to say there is no better evidence than when it comes to Hillary Clinton and her cadre laws are for little people. Well, we'll see what actually happens. But as I mentioned, uh, there is apparently some sort of uh, probe going on. The State Department is probing the Clinton handling of government emails and could uh, pull her security clearance. The investigation, I think it's fair to say, has come to an end. But what to do as a result 
is perhaps a better way of characterizing what could happen next. Meanwhile, Illinois is grappling with a full-fledged financial crisis, and not even the lottery is safe, with Republican Governor Bruce Rayner warning the state is entering banana republic territory. That's in quotes. Facing billions of unpaid bills, pension obligations, the state is uh, hitting a cash crunch that's rare even by Illinois standards. Uh, Top financial official just warned 100 percent of the state's monthly revenue will be eaten up by court-ordered payments. Rayner is uh, calling a special session of the Democrat-led General Assembly in a bid to pass what he hopes will be the first full budget package in almost three years. And Illinois will literally lose the lottery if the budget fails. The state lotto requires a payment from the legislature every year. The current appropriation expires the end of this month, meaning no authority to pay prizes. In anticipation of a budget deadlock, the state already is planning to halt Powerball and Mega Millions sales. Uh, it's a disappoint. It's uh, disappointing that the legislature uh, has an inability to pass a budget that has led to this development and will result in Illinois lottery players being denied the opportunity to play these popular games. That's what the lottery acting director, Greg Smith, said. Um, although, you know, I think the republic would probably stand if we weren't ga- uh, gambling our money away. Well, the government, the governor rather, has called for a special session starting today. The state so far is operating on a series of stopgap spending packages. But the problems are years in the making and maybe just as long in the fixing, caused in large part by the state's poorly funded pension system. Sound familiar? Poorly funded pension system which led Moody's Investor Services to downgrade the credit rating to the lowest of any state. The state currently has $130 billion in unfunded pension obligations and a backlog of unpaid bills worth $13 billion. Now, we're not quite that far along, but uh, we do have a major pension problem. And as I've discussed here before, we're not alone. Other states have made promises they cannot uh, fund as well. Reports have suggested the state could be the first to attempt to declare Chapter 9 bankruptcy, but under the law, that's impossible unless Congress gets involved. We'll find out what happens next. Meanwhile, the news on Friday that the U.S. Department of Justice wouldn't bring charges against former Governor John Kitzhaber or first or his girlfriend, Sylvia Hayes, brought some closure for the couple and for Oregonians who have wondered about the more than two-year-old federal investigation. Well, Willamette Week reports that for Kitzhaber, the four-term governor, the announcement was a huge relief. It also gave him an opportunity to repeat a theme he's put forth over the past two years, that it was the media's fault. Over the last two years, the former governor wrote in a statement released through a spokesman, I have kept a low profile while resolving questions related to the federal investigation that began shortly after I was uh, elected to a fourth term as Oregon's governor. I'm glad to report the U.S. Attorney General has concluded the investigation and found nothing to pursue. As I have said from the beginning, Kitzhaber continued, I did not resign because I was guilty of any wrongdoing, but rather because the media frenzy around these questions kept me from being the effective leader I wanted and needed to be. Then there was the real investigation, not the reporters, but by people with subpoena power and the ability to look at everything in context. They decided there was nothing to pursue, so I'm back. Now, the question is, what does that mean? I'm back in a Facebook post over the weekend. And I quoted from it. His girlfriend picked up uh, that thread as well, pointing to unethical media, bad actors. But she also appeared to acknowledge something that Kitzhaber didn't. 
that she'd made mistakes. For that, she was deeply sorry. One of the many questions that remains is what federal investigators learned in the course of their investigation, which began before Kitzhaber resigned on the 18th of February in 2015. In an interview in uh, June the 16th with Oregon Public Broadcasting, the former governor told reporter Kate Davidson that the feds only contacted him about a month and a half ago. So, What were federal agents doing between late 2014 and May of 2017 when they finally talked to the former governor? Well, in the normal course of events, it would take a long time to find that out because federal law enforcement agencies sometimes respond slowly to federal Freedom of Information Act requests. But in this case, Oregonians are fortunate. Again, quoting from Willamette Week, that's because when the Oregon Department of Justice suspended its short-lived criminal investigations of Kitzhaber and Hayes in favor of the federal investigation in late February of 2015, The agency did so in exchange for a promise from federal authorities. The U.S. Attorney's Office has agreed to share information with the state once the far-ranging federal criminal investigation is completed, said the statement from the Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum in February of 2015. So Kitzhaber and his girlfriend will now accelerate their reentry into public life in Oregon and reporters will wait for the feds or Oregon Department of Justice to share with the public what the feds shared with that agency. Meanwhile, those at the top of the state's uh, Democratic Party, many of whom encouraged or even pressured Kitzhaber to resign, are now reluctant to talk about him. Since the U.S. Department of Justice announced in, on Friday that House Speaker Tina Kotek and Governor Kate Brown have remained silent, only Senate President Peter Courtney commented uh, on the Fed's announcement. I'm glad to see this long investigation come to a close, Courtney said in a brief statement. Now, Governor Kitzhaber and his family can put this trying time behind them, end quote. Well, the state's large papers, editorial pages, were largely quiet on Kitzhaber and Hayes over the weekend, with the exception of the Eugene Register Guard, the first paper to call on Kitzhaber to resign back then. In its Sunday editorial, the Guard made it clear it's been uh, it's seen enough of the former governor in public. While the investigation has ended with no charges being filed, politics is not just about facts. It's also about appearances, the Guards wrote. The Kitzhaber and Kitzhaber, rather, is now saddled with the image of a powerful man who used his power and influence on behalf of his girlfriend in dealings with state employees and ignored warning signs that eventually led to a federal investigation. In the court of of public opinion, this is not a good image to have. So while Kitzhaber can take satisfaction from the conclusions of the investigation with no charges being filed, he also should make his retirement from politics permanent. Again, from the Eugene Register Guard and quoting more broadly from Willamette Week. So this may not be the last word on the federal investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, rather, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan delivered a major tax reform speech yesterday, and he promised to overhaul the tax code by the end of this year, well, heritage tax expert Adam Michelle says that the United States tax system is badly outdated and in need of a serious reform to revive the slow-growing economy and increased job creation and wages for American families like yours and mine. Well, Adam Michelle is a policy analyst at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, House Speaker uh, Ryan was speaking before a manufacturing summit in Washington, D.C., and delivered a major speech. It's surprising I didn't hear a whole lot about it on the major uh, cable and news networks, um, but he made some uh, pretty brazen statements about what we can expect this year. Can you give us an overview? 
Yeah, he uh, he basically summarized uh, a lot of the proposals that we've seen coming out of his office and uh, other committees on the Hill. He laid out the need for tax reform for American families, so lowering tax rates, consolidating tax brackets, making it simpler for people to to uh, pay their taxes. But then, even more importantly, reforms on the business side. Currently, our corporate income tax rate is the highest in the developed mm-hmm. world, which is driving jobs and businesses overseas. And so we are, he laid out necessary reforms to our business tax system so that businesses can start creating jobs here again, bring jobs back here in the United States, and to get the economy growing. Now, it's encouraging to hear the speaker make a speech like this, outlining what these tax reforms will look like, but the promise that it would be accomplished in 2017 is one, if you've been around as long as I am, you know, you tend to be a little bit skeptical. We think maybe the House can pull this off, House Republicans. What are the prospects of that happening and then making its way to the Senate side and seeing the same kind of support? You know, the tax reform behind maybe only health care reform is one of the major issues that Republicans campaigned on. So I think when, the, when rep, the representatives and the senators sort of start hearing from their constituents and remembering that they have to go home and get reelected in, in two years, that, that that's a, that'll be a powerful incentive for them to uh, sort of get working uh, on tax reform. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, The speaker said in his uh, comments that our tax code is about five times as long as the Bible, but with none of the good news. And one of the one of the things that he emphasized is the simplification so that the average Joe or Josephine could actually do their own taxes. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, this reform. It's going to be um, uh, an effort led by the House Ways and Means Committee chairman, Kevin Brady, a Republican out of Texas. It's going to include the elimination of the death tax, alternative minimum tax. Uh, Talk a little bit about that alternative minimum tax, because I'm not sure everybody understands what that is and what this reform would do to change it. Yeah, so there's an alternative minimum tax on both the individual side and the corporate side. And in both cases, it was originally designed so that those that have large incomes and have the ability to play games with the tax code actually do pay some income tax. But in reality, the system is an entirely separate parallel tax code, essentially, that makes paying taxes incredibly uh, burdensome, where many people have to calculate their taxes two different ways to see which way, which uh, set of rules apply to them. And this creates Mm. Uh, administrative headaches. It makes taxpaying incredibly burdensome. And so with the simplifications they're talking about, paired with uh, with sort of lowering rates and a lot of these sort of reforms that make it easier and or less, less easy for people to game the system and easier for you to know what tax you actually have to pay, the alternative minimum taxes really just are uh, sort of something that is no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. He also talked about um, changes to tax deductions. Now, for the average taxpayer, home ownership, uh, that reduction or deduction rather, and charitable giving, retirement savings, those are the big important ones. But he says he's going to clear out special interests, carve outs and excessive deductions. What are the, some of the things he's referring to and what kind of um, a backlash is he likely to get? So the, the biggest one that he's talking about getting rid of is the state and local tax deduction. And 
this is a this is where you get to deduct the uh, the taxes that you paid to your state and local governments. And although this is a benefit for a lot of people, mm-hmm. the proposal is to is to take is to take that away, but then lower rates for everyone, so that not just those people that qualify for the deduction, but everyone gets a lower rate. So in, on the whole, anytime we talk about eliminating these special carve outs, uh, there will be people that, that complain, but on the whole, everyone's rates should come down. So in the broader context, it makes sense. It does. And even in, in the context of the state and local tax deduction, it's it's really just a subsidy from low tax paying states to high tax states. If you live in California and you can deduct, uh, you have to pay a lot more taxes, you get to deduct a lot more from your federal return than, say, someone in Nevada that's paying, uh, that's paying gets to deduct less of the tax burden because they have chosen to pay less taxes at the state level. So it's really a, a federal bias in, uh, to subsidize those high-tax states, which is just unfair. Um, Speaker Ryan also talked about uh, reducing the number of tax brackets. We've already heard criticism from the other side of the aisle on this. They say they want to consolidate the existing seven brackets into three, double the standard deduction, simplify things to the point that you can do your taxes on a form the size of a postcard. Um, Talk about how that will benefit the average taxpayer um, and why we should favor this part of the tax reform package he's referring to. So anytime you're talking about increasing the number of tax brackets, each tax bracket, just think of it as next time you get a raise, do I need to get wor- do I have to be worried that Uncle Sam is going to take a larger percentage of the of income I'm earning? And when we consolidate those brackets, each of those jumps when your tax rate may go up uh, are fewer. So he's talking about consolidating it from three to seven, which is a major simplification. But also, I don't want to lose sight of that second fact you just you mentioned, mm-hmm. the doubling of the standard deduction. And that, and that helps low-income families. It helps uh, but it helps all all Americans, where you just get to deduct a certain chunk uh, right off the bat, and that is a major simplification and a benefit to everyone. Now he uh, talked about slashing our corporate tax rates. He also said that um, the changes have to be lasting, and he, he emphasized that quite emphatically. He's making reference to that because um, future Congresses, future uh, administrations could change it if it's not, you know, imprinted permanently in the system? Correct. So the sort of it's complex, but the way that they're talking about getting tax reform done is is they have to fit it within certain rules in the budget process that goes on on the Hill. And one of the ways they think they might be able to get around the rules is by not making the corporate – and some of these tax changes permanent, but by making them temporary, it looks like they don't cost as much. But this is bad tax policy, and we know that it doesn't create the true economic benefits uh, that we would like to see from tax reform. So one of the ma- very important things we'd like to see is not only lowering the rate and several other uh, important reforms, but making them permanent. So businesses know with certainty going into the far into the future that they can make investments here in the United States and they're not going to get hit with uh, um double-digit tax increase in five or ten years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we know that it's likely to, um, this reform package is likely, likely to get to broad Republican support. Um, might we anticipate some support from the Democrats as well? And what kind of uh, numbers are necessary for this to pass in both the House and the Senate? Is it simple majorities, or are they required to have uh, greater numbers? So if they use these uh, these uh, 
special budget rules. It's called reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just need simple majorities in both the House, House and the Senate. And it looks like that's the way they're gonna they're gonna go. But really, uh, when we talk about tax reform, it's a it's a job it's a jobs bill. It's a bill that gets America back to work. It takes sort of the wet blanket off of the American economy and and gets it growing again, which increases wages, uh, more jobs for average Americans. These are all uh, fantastic benefits that everyone should be for. So I don't see why Democrats can't support a uh, a jobs bill like this. Well, we'll certainly watch in the next uh, weeks and months, given the fact that the Speaker indicated they plan on passing this, at least in the House, by the end of the year. We should see some action on this fairly soon rather than later. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Again, Adam Michelle is a uh, policy analyst at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I uh, wanted to let you know what's coming up. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Alan Fadling. At least that's the plan. We'll see what what actually unfolds. But our plan is to talk with Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. If you joined us uh, later in the program, I announced at the top of the uh, 4 o'clock hour uh, that Dan Rice is in the hospital. He has an infection that we're trying to... Uh, avoid reaching his heart valve and uh, risking the possibility of a heart valve replacement, which uh, many of you uh, might recall happened in 2011. That was the second time that's happened. The first was back in 1988, I believe. Uh, In any event, um, I was called away sort of in the middle of um, preparing for yesterday's program, and that's why what you heard was not quite what you might have expected. I had pre-recorded a couple of conversations earlier in the day because they weren't available for live uh, interviews. And so I think the last three segments of yesterday's program had been recorded earlier in the day. The rest of it was put together by James uh, after I had uh, spoken to Dan Rice and was told his doctor ordered him to the hospital uh, for further tests and to make sure that his heart was still uh, safe. Uh, All of that said, what happened today and what happened yesterday and could possibly happen tomorrow is a little bit different program than we would otherwise uh, prepare for you. My expectation is we'll have a clear understanding of what happens next with regard to Dan's health, and I'll be here for a full uh, program. Whether or not that happens, uh, we we don't yet know. I asked at 4 o'clock if listeners would uh, remember Dan Rice in prayer, and I'll ask you to do the same. He's a a wonderful guy who's not worried at all about his future. His hope is in Christ, and he demonstrates that every moment, even through these circumstances. But I'd appreciate your prayer for him. Our hope is Alan Fadling tomorrow, an unhurried leader, the lasting fruit of daily influence. Now, one thing I did want to announce, I was so thrilled. I read the uh, Oregon Faith Report on a regular basis. It, I, in fact, have it sent to me via email, and you can subscribe to that as well. The website is OregonFaithReport.com, and it distills some of the uh, news that you might miss here in the state of Oregon that relates to, well, our faith. Uh, But I learned today that the euthanasia bill that we had been talking about here on the program with um, the leader of Oregon Right to Life and others 
has apparently died in committee. Now, this is very good news. Well, Oregon Right to Life and others have been fighting Senate Bill 494 in the Senate since the beginning of this session. The bill passed the Senate 17 to 13. It would have given the power to health care representatives to starve and dehydrate people with mental illness, including dementia. Now, this wouldn't necessarily even be uh, the next of kin. There was a committee of people that was to be established that would uh, determine what a course of treatment might be. Well, after passing the Senate, uh, Senate Bill 494 was assigned to the House Judiciary Committee. However, the Ju- Judiciary Committee closed the 2nd of June, effectively killing the bill for this section. Now, that doesn't mean it won't come up again. And as you know, the Oregon legislature meets every year now. The length of time uh, of each session varies from year to year. Uh, but what this means is for this session, this bill is rightly Dead on arrival, says Gail Atterbury. She's the director of Oregon Right to Life. We are so thankful to our pro-life Oregon senators who stood who stood rather so strong against Senate Bill 494 and gave momentum to the opposition, which our pro-life House uh, House representatives then used to help send Senate Bill 494 to a dead end. Uh, had this bill become law, it would have been used to end the lives of innocent Oregonians who are not in the act of uh, in uh, active dying stage, but are afflicted with mental illness. Thousands of Oregonians wrote to their legislators. Some of them may be in this listening audience. And let me just pause for a moment and say thank you. What you do makes a difference. It may not feel like it. It may not seem like it. It may not always work out in the way that you are uh, urging your lawmakers uh, to act, but it makes a difference. If nothing else, it uh, it tells lawmakers um, what the right course of action should be, whether or not they take it. And that's where our responsibility begins and ends, to advise them to do what is right. Again, thousands of Oregonians wrote to their lawmakers expressing horror about this bill that exemplifies just how extreme Oregon's politicians have begun. Again, Oregon li- uh, Right to Life has been fighting this bill, Senate Bill 494 in the Senate, since the beginning of this session. And we now learned, according to Liberty Pike, um, that youth, the euthanasia bill has died in committee. So praise God, that is no longer a concern in this legislative session. But as you probably know by now, and in particular in the state of Oregon, and I suppose to a lesser degree in the state of Washington, vigilance is always called for. What is dead today will be resurrected and uh, brushed off and uh, dressed up tomorrow. So my guess is this will reappear in some form in a future legislative session, whether that's next year or some point in the future. I appreciate that organizations like Oregon Right to Life are there uh, with their uh, ears to the ground, uh, letting us know about this kind of legislation so that we, the, the citizens, the taxpayers, the residents of the state of Oregon can say to lawmakers this far and no further. This is unacceptable. And that uh, that certainly paid off this time around. We've seen this, of course, in other pieces of legislation when there was an effort to silence and shutter um, pregnancy resource centers. There was an effort on the part of, uh, of uh, believers and supporters in this listening audience and all across the state, and that was thwarted. That came up, of course, more than once, and my guess is it'll come up again. But thankfully, uh, your involvement, your prayers have made a difference. So praise God and thank you for, uh, uh, for speaking truth to power, as they say.
Well, once again, tomorrow, our hope is to bring to you a conversation with Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence. And on Friday, I'm looking forward to a full day in the office, Lord willing, and uh, lightening up, taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Now, today, by the way, is the first full day of summer. So congratulations. We've got a hot weekend coming ahead. So put your T-shirt on and plan on joining us on Friday as we uh, offer some cool humor for the, uh, for the end of the week. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. Thank you for your prayers, and thanks for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.